traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'm Helen Joyce. Welcome to The Economist's Money Talks. It's said now that our economy is the strongest it's ever been in the history of our country. And you just have to take a look at the numbers. I'd like to ask Kevin Hassett. And On today's special programme, we hear from Dr. Kevin Hassett, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisers. That's one of the top officials in the Trump administration. Inside of our country, we are just setting records. And I'm going to keep it that way. We're having a lot of fun. I'm here with our economics editor, Henry Kerr, who spoke to Dr. Hassett. Henry, what is this job exactly? The chair of the Council of Economic Advisers is sort of like the president's internal think tanker on economic matters. So typically, they're someone who's worked previously as an academic economist or at a think tank, and they provide more rigorous backing for the president's economic policies than you would typically find. They try to justify themselves to economic policy wonks like me. And that's particularly interesting in the Trump administration, of course, where there aren't many of those folk around who will try to give you a rigorous grounding of what the administration's trying to do. And so, Henry, you met up with Dr. Hassett. Yes, I met Dr. Hassett in a hotel a stone's throw from the Houses of Parliament in London. I asked him what he made of the recent acceleration in economic growth in America. They've had two strong quarters of economic growth, 3.5% and 4.2%. And I asked him whether this was just a short-term sugar high spurred by President Trump's tax cuts or whether it was something more sustainable. I think a sugar high would be maybe a consumption burst that was driven by something like the government mailing checks to people or the cash for clunker program in the previous recession comes to mind where we bought a bunch of used cars and then people went out and bought new cars. What's happening now is that we've cut the cost of capital, so we've made it cheaper to invest in the U.S. And so that means that the equilibrium capital stock in the U.S. needs to climb. If you look at the history of uh, capital stock adjustments, they tend to take a number of years because capital is costly to adjust. And so what we expected to see when we simulated this last fall was that we'd have a capital spending boom that would drive growth above three this year. And then we'd get 3% sustained growth for a few years, driven by the fact that the capital that was coming online would continue to do so at a sort of gradual rate, but also start to reap dividends because when you buy a new machine, you get GDP because of the investment. And then when When you plug it in, you get GDP because of the output of the machine. And so we think that that second phase is something that's definitely in train and could hardly be called a sugar high. So you disagree then with the survey of professional forecasters that was out last week. The average forecast in that was for 1.8% growth in 2020, 1.5% in 2021. You're expecting faster growth for the foreseeable future. Right. And again, uh, remember that GDP growth in 2016 in the US was 1.6% and that the uh, growth forecasts from President Obama's Council of Economic Advisers, run by my close friend Jason Furman, so I don't mean to criticize them, was that growth would average a little bit north of two over the next decade, and that when we came out with our 3% forecast for this year, people said the forecast is ludicrous. And it was driven basically on hard science that we've documented extensively in the economic report of the president, and we now see it in the data. 
Let's talk about the labour market and wages. If you look at some measures of wages, if you look at, say, the employment cost index for wages and salaries, the growth in that has been increasing fairly steadily in almost a straight line over the last few years. So how then do you claim that there's a, a wage boom that has started when President Trump came to office? Well, first of all, that if you go to the CEA uh, Twitter account, you can see a whole bunch of charts uh, that we put up because I very commonly have seen the argument that we're just extending the trends that we inherited. And so, you know, being uh, scientifically minded, what we did is we went back to just about every economic indicator, estimated the trend over the previous four years through 2016, and then extended the trend out through today and compared that to the current data. And if you do that, you see a remarkable amount of trend break. You've probably gone and looked at the charts or seen me present them in the White House press conference. And so there has been a trend break in in sentiment, in capital spending, in output growth. In the wage growth, uh, if you look at it uh, closely, you see kind of a second derivative. You see it accelerating at the end. But you're right that wage growth was sort of in the two range, and now it's in the three range. And so it's not that, that it was negative. But I think that real wage growth has gone from zero to north of 1% now uh, by our best estimate. And I think that that surge is happening because productivity is up and capital spending is up. And those things, which are basic economics, the kind of thing that you know, the economist has been talking about for 100 years, you know, those things are clearly the result of the tax bill. You've come in for some criticism on the left in those measures for doing things like using six-quarter moving averages, which people say is very unfamiliar. Uh, Could you explain your thinking behind that? Oh, sure. So when I made the presentation with six-quarter moving averages, President Trump had been president for six quarters, and it seemed the natural choice. I think that one of the interesting things about being CEA chair and trying to help inform the public is that it it almost seems like no matter what chart we put out, people find something to get super annoyed about. And and, uh, the fact is, that six quarters is actually the natural thing to choose if you're wondering about a person who's been there for six quarters. And so that's why we did it. When President Trump was campaigning, he promised 25 million new jobs over 10 Mm -hmm. years. I think there's been about 4 million since he came to office. Do you really think another 21 million jobs can, can come without seeing sustained inflation? You know, that, that's an extrapolation that I'd have to think more carefully about than I can do on the fly in a podcast. I think that when I came in um, and looked at the a very carefully and professionally detailed forecast of my predecessor, one of the things that they had very much convinced themselves of was that labor force participation was going to continue to trend downward and that the decline in labor supply was a big negative of about four-tenths percent per year, maybe five-tenths, somewhere in there going forward because the baby boomers were retiring and so on. And we decided to be more optimistic about that because we had thoughts about how marginal incentives would affect uh, labor supply. And one of the things that's a big shock to me is that the labor force participation is really surprised on the upside, even of our forecast. And so what's going on in the strong economy is that there's this large population, especially of working age, marginalized folks, that are coming back to work. They're getting back into the labor force and they're you know, finding fulfillment that maybe they didn't have in a weaker economy. And, and exactly where that ends is something that I'd, I'd have to really get back to you on because I'd have to run the numbers. Republicans used to style themselves as the party of fiscal responsibility. We've just seen a rise in the deficit for the year just gone to 3.8% of GDP. It's forecast to rise again over the next 12 months. It's possible that America will soon see its first trillion dollar 
deficit. Mm-hmm. How does that square with that notion of Republicans as the party of fiscal responsibility? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, when uh, President Trump came into office, we were the highest corporate tax place on earth. You know, the OECD was calling on us to cut the corporate rate. We had a military that was very ill-prepared in places that the equipment was kind of rotting on the vine and we needed to increase military spending. And so there was some priority one problems that President Trump uh, decided to address. And I think that he was right to prioritize those things, but now he's prioritizing uh, deficit reduction. You know, he mentioned that in our budget, it's not public yet, but in our budget we're calling for a 5% across the board reduction in government spending. The deficit is clearly going to be a major focus of political debate and of our policy uh, in the years to come. But I think that one way to think about uh, the numbers, and you could, uh, again, uh, perhaps we could uh, email you the exact numbers because I'm doing it in my head now, but I think that compared to pre-administration forecasts over the next 10 years, we've got a little bit north of a trillion dollars for deficit cumulatively over 10 years, and we've got about six trillion more GDP. I would argue that that $6 trillion more GDP is attributable in large part to changes in policy. That, you know, we came into a world where everyone was saying we're in the new normal, we couldn't get back to high growth. Now we're in such high growth that the CBO is, Congressional Budget Office is projecting that it continues for a while. And so I think that, you know, any rational person would take a $1 trillion increase the deficit for $6 trillion more GDP, that $6 trillion of more GDP, of course, gives us an enormous opportunity to now make progress in the deficit, but not in a way that harms growth. And that's going to be a, a clear focus of ours in the year to come, and it's something the president's already talked about. Is it your position, then, that deficits aren't really a short-term problem, they're more of a long-term problem? You know, speaking as, as an economist, not as a, as a you know, White House policy official who's talking, because I don't know what the White House's position on you know, exactly what the duration of deficit impacts are, but I could tell you that as an economist, one of the things that I've always thought is that, that the near-term impact of deficits is smaller than the sort of big estimates in the literature, and that that's kind of a shame. Because if deficits led to really big interest rate changes right away, then it would be very hard for politicians to sort of steal money from future generations because the, the economic harm from deficits would be immediate. And so therefore, generational equity, something that my co-authors Alan Auerbach and Larry Kotlikoff have written a lot about, generational equity would, would be necessary really economically. And I think that those effects aren't in the data, even though you go back to Bob Rubin a long time ago, they were sort of claimed that they were there, but I don't think that they're as strong as, as the sort of strongest deficit hawks think. And I think that really in terms of generational equity, that might be kind of a shame because if it were, it might be important for politicians more aggressively to stay ahead of the curve on deficits. Isn't the implication of that view that there was a big policy mistake between about 2010 and 2015, when there was a lot of panic about deficits in the US at a time when the economy was weaker and perhaps could have used the fiscal stimulus that's ended up happening in 2017? No, I think that the big policy mistake, which I think is a legendary policy mistake, I think that economic historians will write about it for 100 years, is that in the midst of a financial crisis, when Rahm Emanuel, I think, you know, quite wisely said, you know, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, the Obama economic team let the crisis go to waste. Uh, they said that policy has to be timely and temporary and targeted rather than addressed towards fixing our long-term problems. And this is not ex post theorizing on my part. I could email you a testimony I gave 
brief to the House Budget Committee during the stimulus debate back then, where I said that what we need to do is have a stimulus, but we need to combine it with a long-term fiscal consolidation because what will happen then is that markets will see that U.S. policy has improved a lot, and therefore markets would have cause to celebrate. And so it wouldn't just be a short-term Keynesian thing, it would be that plus a long-term rebalancing of broken fiscal policies that would put us on a better path. And I think the fact that we went through a crisis and we fixed nothing, you know, we left it, we were still the high corporate tax place on earth, we still had entitlement programs that were out of balance in the long run and so on, was a tremendous squandered opportunity. And it was based on a kind of religious and unscientific Keynesianism, I think, of the Obama administration economists. And your your view of that, the appropriateness of short-term stimulus combined with long-term reform, didn't change between those post-crisis years and 2017-18 when the unemployment rate is obviously much, much lower. Well, I think that a fiscal consolidation is an oppor- is a growth opportunity for the U.S. Uh, right now, and there's a big literature on the positive growth effects of fiscal consolidation if they're well managed. But you know, I think that you know that's what are the next steps in in the policy world. You know, again, President Trump has already uh, signaled that he wants to get ahead of the curve with five percent across the board uh, government spending reductions, and I think that would be a really good first step in that direction. One of the apparent contradictions in the administration's economic agenda, which we've written about The Economist, Mm -hmm. is this combination of a desire to reduce trade deficits while increasing the fiscal deficit, something Mm -hmm. that economic theory says couldn't sit together easily unless the private sector was saving more, which isn't happening either. A little bit happening, uh, saving more, yeah. (laughs) But it's mostly because of a revision. (laughs) Not to the the extent you would need to reconcile those two things. So how how do you reconcile them? How do you look at that? Well, I mean, there's an accounting identity about fiscal uh, deficits and trade deficits. And I think that there's also the reality that you know, if, if there's a non-tariff barrier for autos in Korea, which there was, then the U.S. car companies aren't going to sell any cars to Korea. And if we don't have any barriers, then the Koreans are going to sell lots of cars here, and that'll affect the trade deficit. But I think that you're correct to emphasize that if you want to make progress on the trade deficit in the long run, then for the most part, you have to go after uh, the capital count side, too, and, and the fiscal uh, deficit is part of that. One of the things that I've spoken a lot about, though, as a last thought, is that a lot of the trade deficit in the U.S. is is almost like an accounting anomaly. It's all inside the current account because what U.S. firms did under the old tax code was that they would transfer price their profits, say, to Ireland, and that would increase the income of their Irish subsidiary and increase the trade deficit because they were making it in Ireland and paying too much to the Irish subsidiary for the import to the U.S. That drove the trade deficit up drove the income of foreign subsidiaries up, all of that happens inside the current account. And so I think that there's a lot of room to reduce the trade deficit just within the current account by eliminating that transfer pricing practice. And if you look at the tax bill that just passed, it should actually help us make a lot of progress in that regard because the rate is lower, but we also have a lot of rules which are pretty technical that make it much harder to transfer price. And so we expect that over time to have a big impact on the trade deficit without sort of having a capital account offset. And and the final thought is that I would say one of the surprises for me as I modeled that is that it looks like the trade deficit reduction from a reduction in transfer pricing has happened slower than I expected. And I think one reason might be that if you were sort of paying too much to your foreign sub in the past, if you change that behavior right away, then maybe that creates litigation risk because people say, oh, you were cheating in the past. And, And so I think that transfer pricing hasn't dropped yet as much as I expect it to. But if you look at the fundamentals, it surely must. And when it does, that will drive the trade deficit lower. Kevin Hassett, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Henry Kerr, in conversation with Dr. Kevin Hassett, the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And if you go to economist.com forward slash Hassett, that's H-A-S-S-E-T-T, you can read the full transcript of the interview. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget, if you want to read any more in any of our stories, subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating... Pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.